Thank you for joining me, Mark Grixtie, for this invitation to explore deeper together into the divinity, science, spaciousness, and intuition of hurt and healing with awe in trauma. Okay, David Grant, so please you could join me again for my podcast. Uh, it's such a, an honor to have you with me for this time. Oh, I, I love hanging out with you, Mark. Oh, me too. We were lucky enough to be able to hang out a little bit recently, uh, just in and around the phase three that you were running for us. And it was uh, it was great. So it's precious moments to be able to catch up on you and everything, you personally, as well as everything you're developing, what's going on. And and um, it's really lovely. It's a lovely being with you because I can look in a, in a mirror, in a reflection as well, and looking at and reviewing where I'm going, what I'm doing, my own path. And it's been lovely over time to see that as my path is developing, it seems to be still in keeping with yours and uh, that's 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 so beautiful because oftentimes I've found I'm working with and alongside someone and over time our paths start to take very different directions um so it's mm -hmm. nice to feel it's still kind of such a synchronicity well we're both seeking out the truth the truth mm -hmm. That, that's that's a term that's really uh, been in my mind a lot for the last few years. Is it is, is truth something that has a certain resonance for you? Uh, to me, it's what both science and art are about. Mm -hmm. Search for the truth. Mm. Search for the truth. Different perspectives on the truth uh, through, through different lenses of science and art. And yeah, yeah, and and uh, the truth is immutable. Mm -hmm. The truth doesn't change even if it's elusive, mm. even if we chase it and never catch it, so to speak. Mm. But it's, it's, the, it's the knowing that there is truth, you know, wh whatever that is, you know, and then there's the attempt to try to uh, find it, to reveal it, and so on. And, and, and that's a dynamic process. It's, there's nothing static about it. Mm. <clears throat> it's not a, an animal that can be trapped and and then examined scientifically. No, it's more likely uh, we're likely the animal that's trapped, you know, in, in the pursuit of the truth. So, yeah, this is lovely. I, I, I was just thinking before we met today. You know, I know we're going to talk about a few things and, and parts work being part of that. And I was kind of doing a bit of parts work before meeting with you or myself, sitting kind of using a bit of a brain spot and about what was coming up for me in preparation not 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 really a neocortical preparation more about a, an emotional one to meet with you and talk about something that's very close to me in, in terms of understanding parts work and I find I've done a lot of work over the years in parts in training in parts working with clients in parts I used to do a lot of systemic narrative work which was all about parts and we used to call it externalization and these kind of processes and ego state work and parts and do you know how, the more how about interjections interjections you ever hear that one interjections yeah 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 in what sense do you mean well that's an old analytic term yeah, yeah. or sort of a, sort of a maternal interject or eternal interject or yeah all this. Uh, my my point is that we get caught up in the terms and and the concepts and we and and then we start believing them okay and they become part of our of our culture part of our religion and we lose the fact that that they are not embodiments of truth they're, they're ways of looking at things but they're only one angle one lens and one snapshot in time when it's it's infinitely multi multi-dimensional I want to just sort of kick this right out to you. Mm. Uh, it used to be called, you know, interjects and cells and alters, and now the term we use is parts. And it's a good serviceable term, but we've bought into it. You know? The brain spotting attitude, the brain spotting approach is to always be questioning, always be wondering, pondering, processing, mm. to always be in, in a dynamic flow. As, as opposed to being uh, nailed into a, a static stance. Mm -hmm. So, so the, way, the way I want to, what I'll just bring to you and then you'll, you'll flow with this is, is uh, uh, 
the most important thing I could say about parts is that we really don't know what parts are. Okay. It's an, it should be an open concept. Mm. When it comes to the, the neurobiology of parts, is there like, you know, you know, we talk about capsules, dissociative capsules and training capsules. Do they actually exist in like in these bubbles? You know, uh, no, mm. no. I mean, um, everything that exists in the brain is holographic. So what's in the part is in the whole, mm. which is an interesting challenge for us in, in, in terms of the parts concept. But um, uh, there is some sort of configuration that couldn't even show up on, on the greatest scans that we have. Okay. And that configuration in, in the brain um, is, is always changing. It's not a fixed configuration. Mm -hmm. So uh, that would be the closest I could say what the neurobiology of parts or, or, or part is. Um, but that also gives us some guidance when it comes to how we conceptualize what parts are. Yeah. Okay. They, they don't have rigid boundaries. Okay. They're not static. Um, they're, um, there's a, a now you see it, now you don't quality to it. Um, so uh, I think, you know, again, brain spotting is an open model. So to me, the brain spotting approach to, to parts is an open approach. Mm. Because what happens is, is, is uh, be, because we're dealing with the unknown, because we're, we're dealing with the uh, indefinable, because we're dealing with things that are always moving and changing, um, uh, we like to try to take that snapshot in time and freeze it and, and then buy into the fact that that's reality. Mm -hmm. And that's not how things work in this universe. Mm -hmm. The universe isn't fixed. The universe is expanding, mm -hmm. you know, for whatever that means. Uh, and again, this, this all harkens back to, to the uncertainty principle. Mm -hmm. So, I think that it's important for, for us to not get into complying to, to particular definitions and conceptualizations, mm -hmm. but, to, but to hold our awareness of whatever it is that we're thinking about, encountering, processing uh, at, as being open and uh, changeable and non-fixed. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. In, in a sense, it's like the human system or the human systems. And what, what we understand as parts mm -hmm. are reflections of the human system in a certain context. Mm -hmm. So as I've been popping mm -hmm. off, what, what have you been processing that? <laughs> well, um, various things because um, I get something you you say something and i kind of formulate and get thought into my thought process about that and i relate it to myself and all my clients and then you move on to say something else and the flow has shifted on and it's moved on again and again and again and this is i think reflecting as well you know what you're saying about parts and the universe it's a continual state of movement and flow it's a dynamic process that can't be narrowed down and, and captured in a certain way and i like the idea of the, what you're talking about the you know the holographic effect and I was just looking a bit about how hologra holo holograms are made. And this is kind of idea that there's thousands and thousands and thousands of layers of information that then start to create this three-dimensional effect. But it's always blurry. It's always never quite envisioned. It's always opaque. And there's something frustrating about that because you can't quite see it as clearly as you want to. But something beautiful because there's a mystery, again, that remains in its opacity. It's never quite done and dusted it's never complete we never know it's never a truth it's always a, a an evolving version of something so mm -hmm. and i like that when you know we're doing brain spotting you know and you go into the body to work with let's say a part and you feel it but it never <laughs> well rarely transcends exactly into a very clear part it's got more of a holographic nature to it a sense of isness but not necessarily clarity as you're connecting in with that mm -hmm. and i'd say inside of, of what we call a part has to always be parts. And inside of those parts that are inside the part oh, has to be parts. 
sort of reflecting our cellular and our molecular nature. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's it's sometimes I find it frustrating, or I have a part of me that becomes frustrated when I really want to focus in on a part that I think has got information for me internally is part that's here to teach me could be a part that's feeling a bit worthless or a bit kind of you know inadequate that kind of part and I really want to kind of connect in with it and when I really want to get the the microscope on it really understand it is it a certain age certain feeling is it a certain way of being I find that this again this movement happens I can never quite lock it down there's a sense of connection to it but it's so, it feels so complex and diverse that I also I feel then the frustrating part takes over and, and that's where I'm at. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's kind of where I, where I was coming from with what you were saying there. I'll pick up on that in a moment, but yeah. Okay, so, so I noticed it's interesting. I'm talking about parts of you. As I'm doing it, another part is kicking in. So my podcast past it, podcast part is kicking in, which is also kind of trying to censor and guide me in terms of what I'm talking about. But really, um, it, it reflects what I'm saying. When I start to want to focus in on something, I notice it moves and it shifts. And I only find I get further away from my truth, whatever that may be at that time, when I'm really trying to keep it frozen and static in time and space so I can look at it, my left brain perhaps can analyze it a bit more. That's where I get my stuckness. It's really, really frustrating. Well, a quantum concept is that when you look at something, you change it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what, what mm -hmm. I'm saying and, and what I think we're both saying is that it's important to approach parts work in a non-literal, non-linear fashion. Mm. To approach it with uncertainty. Mm. And to, to know that everything that exists and every system that exists is always moving and is always changing. Mm -hmm. mm. So to not try to get a snapshot in time and space because the moment you do that, it's already changed. Mm. To some degree, we could say it's already gone. So people that people that makes people uncomfortable because people like to have something to hold on to. Yeah, I call it you know holding on to the side of the swimming pool in the deep end. You know, instead of being able to let go and, and find out you can swim. Mm. This this can be, you know, in my work, I've seen a lot. This can be very um, uh, confusing and frustrating sometimes when we're working and maybe, you know, people are talking about parts. It's more and more in a therapeutic dialogue, isn't it, these days? And, and people want to work with parts and you're working with parts. And it may be that something comes up that feels quite tangible in terms of a part you want to work with, a young part, a grieving part, a sad part, a baby part, you know, whatever it might be. This, there's a part there. And, and you're working with it a bit. And then it kind of something happens in a session where there's a movement, a shift and a real frustration comes up because it's just hard to dialogue with that part, to be with that part in a really in a way that we're interchanging right now. It's continually changing and morphing. And for the client to keep up with their own part is one thing. But the, for the therapist as well, to have to know what's going on there is, I'd say, impossible. Right. Absolutely. We can't. Mm. But we are taught in different parts models that not only can we, but we should, we must. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what we do in, in brain spotting, we have part spotting and part spotting it is, is simple. It's, it, it takes into account positionality that when the part is present, whether already present or the client on their own or with our guidance calls, calls the part into the room or close the part out of themselves that the part is in a position in the room and and that by looking at that position um, that it helps to focus and deepest deepen processing the theory is this is no fact to this the theory is that looking in that direction is similar to gaze spotting or even similar to pointer spotting where there's some relevance to that position of that part in the room but um, 
I haven't thus far tried to formalize this part spotting model beyond the positionality, except there's some guidance that that you know, when you, when you're orienting towards something visually or, or or through any of the senses, and that you force yourself to stay on that, so that you're not mo moving around naturally, which we do, that it changes the way that that we experience it, interact with it, so to speak. Um, but and here's the big but, so to speak. Um, everything in brain spotting is looked at through the implicit before we ever look, look at the explicit. And we recognize that we never, in many cases, we never have to get to or never can get to the explicit, mm. that whatever is happening is happening implicitly. Mm. And that aligns with the model of the conscious thinking, the uh, uh, thought-based, language-based neocortex, and then the entire subcortical system underneath that includes all these somatic systems. Um, and that and that everything that is subcortical is the implicit, mm -hmm. which is most of where we are at a given time. So that the concept of parts and brain spotting. Um, now again, everybody has their own concept that they bring to it, but the basic concept is that is that parts are present all the time in the subcortical unconscious. Mm -hmm. And that and that even when we're not mindful of it, even if a person has never studied this, uh, parts work is going on. Okay. Aspect work is going on. Separate selves work is, is going on. Um, but with brain spotting, we bring the idea of positionality to it. And and then we ask, you know, a, a series of questions, which are, you know, first you ask permission. Because parts were created, we uh, we believe uh, through uh, traumatic experiences where a person had no choice or control. So to engage a part, we want to first put the the choice and control in their hands. But from there, to to sort of look and see how old they are, what they're wearing, what the look look in their eyes, you know, uh, face and body is, um, uh, and and then we ask. An important question is how do you feel towards this part? Mm -hmm. Because parts tend to be disenfranchised, mm -hmm. and parts uh, can also be um, when a person has issues of self-contempt, for example. Then there is oftentimes contempt and rejection towards a part, which becomes a which is a dynamic phenomenon. But you have to generally you have to deal with that first. Um, uh, but but this is the part spotting frame. But the idea is that from there, the person in the client role is looking at the, the, the part in its position and then follows wherever things go. Okay. We don't have the the uh, the role or the prescription of, of do this with this part, you know, try to engage a protective part, all these different things. Not that we can't, but we believe that the human system, you know, is is has evolved to and is wired to do what it does on its own. Mm. So that, at which means it, it uh, to do it implicitly. Mm -hmm. So that we look towards the system, somehow using this framing um, as a way to process things hypothetically more efficiently than, than it would without this particular framing. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's the, if you extract the brain spotting viewpoint up, mm -hmm. That's that's what it would be, but but I'm going to go back to this. Uh, that's in just calling out in the position. That's explicit. Asking for these dimensions is explicit. But from there, we look to drop down from the, from that explicit into the implicit, mm -hmm. which is the processing, mm -hmm. which is the, is how the how the uh, um, subcortical unconscious systems work. Mm -hmm. Um, we also, we are mindful of the relational ex, ex, uh, aspect of the person and their own part or parts, okay? Which, again, uh, you know, it's, it's hypothetical, it's theoretical. Which, by the way, 99.9% .9 of, of all psychotherapy, all psychology, all mental health work is hypothetical. And it's based, and it's presented in this Yes, but we have to go for the evidence-based, you mm -hmm. know, 
as if when you when you put you don't even have to put put that under a microscope. All you have to do is look at it, and you see it's not scientific. It's hyper, you know it's not scientific fact. It's hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Okay, but a- anyhow, um, uh, so in that context, we don't look at parts in any kind of fixed way. In fact, we try to be mindful that uh, that it is non-literal, non-linear, and it is always changing. Mm-hmm. So whatever it was one second ago is not what it is now. And it's not what it's going to be one second. Mm-hmm. Now, if you like to hold on to the side of the mm-hmm. pool, mm-hmm. okay, you're never going to get beyond that. You know, you're never going to get to floating around the deep end of the pool, whatever size and dimension it is. But the literality, the linearity, linearity is, is that delimitization of holding onto the side of the pool and not letting yourself float out into the uncertainty mm-hmm. whether you're going to remain buoyant or not. And that could apply to the, the client and the therapist in, in that diet. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and part of the neuroexperiential model is that our state of being affects the client's state of being. Mm-hmm. If we are in a state of anxiety, mm-hmm. okay, but anxiety that's not uh, germane to the circumstance, but it's our own limbic countertransference anxiety, if we're in a state of anxiety, mm-hmm. the client is going to be in that field and the clients, it is likely to bring up a state of anxiety inside of the client that is not in relation to their internal stuff. It's in relation to you know, what we bring into their field. Mm-hmm. If we are in compliance with certain models, then by nature, no matter what we do, how we bring that our compliance to that model to the client is going to, by nature, we believe, bring them, activate their compliance in a response, which is a survival response, which is always there. And you don't even have to press that button. You can just think about that button and it goes off. Mm-hmm. So, so again, the holding onto the side of the pool. Well, the client, what what are they going to do if we're holding on to the side of the pool? They're going to hold on to the, the side of the pool double strong mm-hmm. by nature. So, mm. Uh, mm. I mean, it just just brings to mind something. Here. I do a lot of work with um, obviously with the brain supporting trainings and supervisions, and and more and more therapists are coming in with this this. I think it's a beautiful problem, but but in that they have trained or will have trained in various modalities up to this point, and also then maybe new to fairly new to brain spotting. But um, but of course, a lot more people are training in parts work as well. And you know, the question keeps coming up: How can I integrate one with the other? And there there is obviously an overlap between these you know the richness of, of many approaches coming up at the moment. But there's something that therapists really are drawn to at the moment. There seems to be an explosion in, in doing um, um, parts work that may have more of an explicit nature to it in the way that we're thinking about it together now. And and then for them to also then, you know, really starting to practice and appreciate the depth, the richness and of brain spotting. And sometimes I often get this question, well, can these can these be married? You know, can, can, could there be a good marriage happening here between these these models? Um what are you thinking about that, David? Uh, I, I'm going to challenge that. Okay. Okay. We're, lo- we're all looking at the same system or systems. Mm-hmm. So there's no issue of can you marry, can you integrate? Mm-hmm. The systems are integrated already. Okay. The question is whether we're going to delimit our um, capacity to see those systems mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. And you and and if there's if a, mo- a model A delimitates in uh, uh, delimits in a particular way, mm-hmm. and then model B delimits in a particular way, mm-hmm. and same with model C. The question: Can you integrate A and B and B and C and A B and C? Mm-hmm. Is is a folly. Mm-hmm. It's the systems you're looking at. Okay, it, if the question is. Is your model an open or is your model a closed model or is your model model a partially closed model? 
because if it's closed or partially closed, you're not seeing the whole system. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can't integrate. If you have a system that attempts to see the, uh, the uh, 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 a, a model that attempts to see the entire system or systems, you can't integrate another model that, that, um, uh, that doesn't see the whole system. Mm-hmm. That means you're going to have to narrow your viewpoint. Okay, and I'm talking very theoretically, but it's for everybody to to try to figure out what that means if they want to, and 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 then to see how how that applies. Mm-hmm. Because brain spotting is an a a, a a mostly implicit model. Can you integrate a model that is much more explicit into brain spotting's implicit model? Well. It's for each person to, to be mindful of and, and try to find their way with. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so I think we have to take a bigger view and maybe even a more philosophical view mm-hmm. of the idea of integration. There's no reason to integrate something that is delimited. The only reason to in- integrate something is if it can widen your vistas mm-hmm. or deepen your awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, see um, what I call the neuro experiential model of brain spotting mm. is is sort of a uh, uh, an attempt um, to open the the model in the face of our field, which has so many closed models. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. So, um, uh, if you have a particular, we'll go back to parts. I believe most parts models are explicit more than 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 they should be. That's my. That's, I, I like to say my belief is my own bias. So when I present it, that people don't take what I'm saying as fact, or you know, because I'm supposed to be an expert, you know, that that you listen to the experts. So I call it my my bias. But uh, um, if parts are primarily an implicit phenomenon, then by nature, you would expect that, that a parts model that is more uh, explicit is not gonna be capturing uh, the, 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 full, the fullness of what parts are about. And um, uh, now, by the way, these implicit models, have a great deal of information, a great deal of wisdom to them. So I'm not saying that that they you know should be rejected. But what happens is, um, if someone is really deeply trained and experienced in, in a, a more explicit parts model, and then they come to brain spotting, okay, if they're willing to be open, they're, if they're willing to to see, to embrace, and surrender to uncertainty then it's not like that wisdom and experience goes away. Mm-hmm. It's that when they work, when they, if they can be open to translating the explicit model into more implicit mm-hmm. model, they'll understand what's going on implicitly in a way that someone who doesn't have that wisdom won't understand. I did, um, uh, uh, I did part spotting with a trainer in one of the, 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 parts models mm. okay <clears throat> i won't give away anything if i say she she said she saw her brain doing everything that's done in in the model that she was steeped in on its own and she was watching it happen happening mm-hmm. but she didn't have to do anything to make it happen and because and this woman was brilliant you know, among other things she understood as she was watching it that her system knew how to do it better than anything she could do. And she watched her model play out implicitly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So again, this is kind of a, <clears throat> a another way of, of looking at this. 
Mm, that's a lovely response and and just i just realized you know you you kind of gave a, a beautifully implicit response to what was quite an explicit question <laughs> and uh, but but it's not that they they can't meet there i mean in, i like the etymology of implicit means literally means turning in on itself you know everything turning in on itself and and you know in my question you turned it back in to the you know the, the power the richness the immensity of the innate wisdom of the implicit self and the way once we inhibit that to i think to to allow for something else to come through something more explicit there's a cost because with you know this reciprocal inhibition happens where something's always got to give for something else to come to the forefront and we know that the brain's constantly doing that and the implicit explicit dance is happening um i i wonder if because again then you went into the neuro experiential model um which i think really gives you know more dimensions to this which has been really helpful for so many of us already uh in in that coming to mind now in that neuro experiential neuro experiential model or approach you'll also be talking about parts of the kind of the, the guidance in someone's kind of setting up a brain spotting session a new therapist is setting up in it that there are more neocortical parts to that approach where you might be asking someone you know what they want to work on and they're getting the suds and this kind of you know there's a movement between neocortex and subcortex as they're working towards a deep subcortical process i wonder is is it maybe at that point um maybe at the outset and and towards the end of a session where there is perhaps more of a neocortical connection happening in, in you know or more bias towards the neocortex in those sessions whether again there are times that talk yeah more explicit talk around parts can facilitate the deep implicit process and it's happening you know through the middle of the session well that's completely individual okay mm -hmm. which is part of the open mind mm -hmm. that some people in order to optimize their processing their healing need to talk throughout it mm -hmm. okay and and the talking is usually illustrating mm -hmm. and something about it for for certain people um uh it makes it enables it to happen for other people if they talk they can't process at the same time and i'm giving two poles you know but it's not everything in between it's because it's not you know uh two-dimensional it's not even three-dimensional it's multi-dimensional mm -hmm. you know how you you could get into well if you talk how you talk you know and what and what the nonverbal communicate all these different dimensions to it um so uh i do want to say when you talk about um uh, the explicit when you're you know asking about what you want to work on and, mm. and then you know uh, are you activated what we call the setup process mm. okay. it's all aimed at um at looking at and understanding and receiving and shaping the frame that the client brings with them and then finding ways to hold that frame with that person at the same time. So something happens systemically for them that wouldn't happen otherwise. Mm -hmm. And our hypothetical goal is to optimize that happening, so to speak, which of course we don't really know what that is. We'll never know. Okay, that's that's again part of the implicit model of brain's body that whatever we're trying to make happen, we know we can't even know what's happening. We can't even know if it's happening, you know? Which is not only okay, that's the way it is. It's it's being in nature, okay. Which, which is you know we live in nature even though we we put up concrete edifices all over nature. It's still nature that we're living. In. It's going to rain that day. It's going to rain. <laughs> you know, the sun's going to be out. The sun's going to be out. You know? uh, but but I want to want to flip to just another way of, of looking at at parts. Um, from the implicit viewpoint, you you can't really define parts. Mm. It doesn't mean you can't try, but it means you only you recognize the limitations of it. So even when you say, "How old what are they wearing? What's how do they look?" and all these things, it's just to catch a little impression in the moment that we know is going is going to change. You know. Um, by the way, if a part is five years old, you know. By conceptualization, they have everything in them from the gener that five-year-old part has everything from the generation to the intrauterine to the birth experience to the preverbal experience. So that part by nature is made up of other parts. You know, 
So when we call them a five, five-year-old part, that's a shorthand, you know. Plus that part lives inside of the person, you know, that has grown beyond five. So there are parts that are more evolved, you know, um, than that five-year-old part that have to influence that part in some way. Okay, I'll give you what I like as a metaphor for understanding how parts affect each other inside the systems of the client. Most guitars are six strings. Let's say we have a guitar of an infinite number of strings. Each string is hypothetically a part. You know, I'm making it very literal for the purpose of, mm. of the metaphor. <clears throat> On a regular guitar, if you pluck one string, the string that string will vibrate. That's how it makes sound. But the other strings, especially the ones next to it, are going to vibrate. And all the strings are going to vibrate. And by the way, even if you can't see it, hear it, or feel it, those other strings are vibrating. Mm. But on the guitar of infinite strings, mm. which is infinite parts, because parts, I believe, are you know infinite in their own way, just like we are infinite, like the universe is infinite. You pluck that one string all the infinite strings in that guitar are going to vibrate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that from that viewpoint, if you're doing part work with a particular part, on some level, you're working to a lesser degree with all the other parts. Mm -hmm. Maybe those who are closer by some dimension to this five-year-old part will, will resonate more. Mm -hmm. But you're not working with a part separately. You're working with a part in a in a system or systems. Mm. And by the way, as we know, parts get older and parts get younger as you process. Mm -hmm. Or a frightened part can become an angry part. Or an angry part can become a sad part. Mm. You know? Or a part that looks like one thing can look like something else. Or a part that looks like one thing no longer has a visible form. But they have some form of energy. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm saying, and I'd like your thoughts on it, mm -hmm. is that if we stop looking at parts from a in a literal linear fashion, mm -hmm. but really look at them not only from a dynamic point of view, but from a quantum point. Of view, yeah. You know, how does that change how we see them and how we attempt to interact with them? Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, it's a lovely um, image with the guitar, with infinite stringed guitar, and um, you know the complexity therein, and, and the intimidation that I was just picturing then of trying to play it. Since I struggle with a six-string guitar in real life, <laughs> um, you, you haven't tried a sitar yet, right? Not, not, not so much. No, um, partners are harpists. That there's there's uh, forty-seven strings there. That that seems like enough. But um, but I love that. The, the, yeah, the the resonance, I get that, I understand and I feel into that. And it's interesting when there's a, experiments on tuning forks, if two tuning forks are the same pitch, you hit one, the other one does make the sound, even when you stop one. Where if you have one tuning fork of a C and another tuning fork of a D and you hit the C one, the D one doesn't sound. It's, as you say, it's still vibrating, but not to the extent where we can hear it. So I, I love the, um, you know, the way of all the universe is energetic, it's frequency and all those frequencies are interacting, even when we can't see it, there's an implicit connection. But also when I was picturing that <laughs> infinite guitar, which someone should make one day, but when I was picturing that, um, if the spaces between the strings were really staying in my head, it's the spaces between the strings that should allow them to be able to resonate and to be able to touch and feel in this um and then McGilchrist in his lovely work, The Matter with Things, calls it <clears throat> betweenness. And in the betweenness, everything is possible. But without the betweenness, when things are closed and shut and in, everything's so kind of stifling each other, there's, there's no betweenness for those different sounds, keys and chords to be played. Yeah. That's called in, gra in uh, graphic art, negative space. Negative space, yeah. And it's the negative space that defines the positive space. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, without those spaces, 
in music you know where would we be if it was one block of music it would be a drone which is something in itself but it wouldn't have the same kind of richness and phonics and harmonics that we'd get um, otherwise so yeah i really like this 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 sense of it but it makes me think as well with the spaces are important and of course brain spotting is all about being able to hold space you know there's so much in the space to be able to let that infinite orchestra uh, you know happen <clears throat> But I, I suppose what is helpful as well when we do move from implicit to explicit, and we see it quite a lot uh, in certain brain spotting sessions, like you say, in an open way, the client will move between thoughts, labels and judgments about certain things is to be able to 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 be able to see something separate. The, the strings that you described on that guitar were separated and to be able to separate things off sometimes and see them what they are, that's the G string, a D string, an E string, an A string, those kind of things can help us as well formulate and conceptualize what's happening. Not to get stuck in that, that music is G, A, D, C, E or whatever, but that we can experience a kind of a neocortical or more of a left centric, left hemisphere labeling a conceptualization of what these strings are but the idea of that is then to be able to play the thing and put it back into the experiential again back into the right brain to hear the music rather than music is just a bunch of letters all lined up if that makes sense yeah well the existential reality of the left brain or the neocortex mm -hmm. is is that it is the last one to know about what's happening because of its density Okay, it works from density, which means it works more slowly. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the so I'll say the left brain is always observing things after the fact. Okay, mm -hmm. which is the best position to do analysis. You know, you analyze something after it's happened. But but the wise left brain knows that the information it has is it is is from Phenomena that are already completed, already done. Okay, and that, um, and this is again, this is again, looking at the model of the explicit versus the implicit, because the implicit, the explicit follows the implicit. The explicit is always behind, you know, time-wise, the implicit. So we look to make the explicit wise. Mm -hmm. And to have it have it have perspective, have it the the the, the implicit needs to, to be philosophic mm. about things, which is to recognize its place and recognize the limitation of its place. The Western cultures have tried to reverse that. You know, and I think that is relevant to what we're talking about in psychotherapy and even in parts work. Mm. You know, the Western culture is so put so much overemphasis on the on the left brain and and so much less emphasis on the the rest of the systems you know including the soul mm. you know, there's a whole other other discussion um, um, that <clears throat> it misses the forest for the truths mm. and that applies to psychotherapy western based psychotherapy Okay, from is is much too explicit, much too neocortical, much too left brain, and gives prominence to the to the wise position that that observes things only after they've happened, mm -hmm. and in that way can't control the things that happen. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you're uh, doing whitewater rafting, you know, and you're sitting in in, in the uh, or white river kayaking and you're sitting in the kayak and you've got you know you've got that oar so you know that you have no control over what's happening you know that in that and in, in the dynamism of what's happening you're just trying to you're trying to flow with it you know if you think that you can control the rapids that you can bend the rapids to your will. Well, then you're then you're trying to do do it from a Western point of view. Mm. Okay, which means in a millisecond you're going to be thrown over. Mm. That's the nature of things in the universe. Mm. And to control the bend in the river, control the rapids, you know, would probably have a, a delusional aspect to it. And well, 
I think that a lot of the Western concepts are delusional. Yeah. And as they apply to psychotherapy and psychology, <clears throat> that's that's the whole thing about evidence-based practice. It's an it's an incredibly Western concept hmm. that science is replicating single variable events. Mm -hmm. That's that's an outrageously Western concept. Hmm. Okay. And in my point of view, it's very it's non-scientific to the point of being anti-scientific. Hmm. You know, it's not just saying, you know, putting your hand on the elephant and saying this is the elephant. This is taking, clipping off the smallest clip uh, uh, from a nail, from the, 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 you know, the, one of the toenails of the elephant, and then cutting it up into 100 pieces and taking one of those pieces and saying, this is the elephant. <laughs> and if you don't believe it, you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to be accredited. Mm -hmm. We're going to say your model mm -hmm. is not scientific. It, it's not evidence-based. Mm -hmm. But anyhow. I want to swing this back to uh, to parts, okay? Um, the idea in parts work in brain spotting, which can be generalized, is that there's something about doing parts work at that moment, mindful parts work, deliberate strategic parts work, whatever that is, that is going to change the nature of the processing that the person has, which again is a hypothesis, okay? That you're gonna be able to access certain things in certain ways that you couldn't access otherwise. Either you couldn't access it or it would take you a lot longer to access it, okay? That's the concept, I'd say that's the philosophy of it, mm -hmm. okay? And you know what? It makes a hell of a lot of sense and I go by that and I use that, good deal. But we don't even know if that's true. And and the and and holding that position, I think, is is valuable and helpful and important to us, because as it's happening, it keeps us in uncertainty. Instead of locking into the fact that this is a part, and this is a part that's a, an X-year-old part or has these qualities and so on, and it's literally there, and and from a quartz point of view, that you can look at it in its position, mm -hmm. okay. Um, when it ain't so clear, it ain't so simple, you know. Yeah. It might might be a, a mirage, you know. It might be a reflection of a shadow of something else. Mm. Might be a mirror reflection of something else. We don't really know. Mm. But but that something about this process appears to be helpful to this person at this time. And our best after the fact, fact calculation is that it helped the person in this process beyond how the process would have gone otherwise. Mm -hmm. you know? but, but we don't know that for sure. And that's okay. Yeah. I, I think it has to be, doesn't it? Because we can't dissect and divide and compartmentalize something in such sophistication as psychotherapy, really, when we're working in an open model. To be able to separate it, make it okay, and then everything's sorted out. And and you know, you you, you made a good point. You know, you were talking about the um, the elephant, for instance, and then you flip back to parts work. But I think you know that idea that we can dissect and segregate and dichotomize, and we murder to dissect. I think Wordsworth says to to dissect something to be able to understand it better means we may understand it better, but in a different context, separate from its reality. And, you know, so we get into this situation and I, I think the word parts is, is beautiful as well, because it's quite explicitly leading us towards understanding that the the inclination of a scientific practitioner, let's say, is to to dissect everything off into parts, is to make p-values for success in research and, you know, and looking at those kind of things and to, to divide, dissect and, and conquer. And it's, I think it's not the first time I used to work in inpatient psychiatric hospitals and it's, it's not the, the first time that, you know, you, you see that the mental health profession is mirroring, probably creating more madness than, it, than it's curing mm -hmm. because we continue to dissect, divide and, and create these... Um, mm, 
orchestrated and, and artificial situations, which then we're trying to impose a cure upon, you know, which is is a horrible uh, way of going about things. So, yeah, I think the word well, you, already you, leads you, to the left brain, uh, explicit left brain function. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. You just, by the way, you just defined diagnosis. Mm. Mm -hmm. Do go on. <laughs> you know, as if you it, it's it's just dividing it, you know, human experience into these, you know, boxes. Uh-huh. And then dividing those boxes. Yeah. But David, how without a diagnosis, without a box, without a compartmentalizing the client, could we possibly put forward a treatment plan? Well, who says there's any value to a treatment plan? Yeah. I'd say the only treatment plan is just to show up. Mm -hmm. You know, the treatment plan implies you can control and predict things in advance. Mm. In this vast, infinite, you know, systems that, you know, that make up person time. Mm. That's that's massively gra grabbing onto the side of the pool so hard that your fingers end up going into the concrete, mm. okay, and get locked in there in perpetuity. Mm. Um, you know what the tip off to the fact that that diagnosis is problematic is? Is that most diagnoses end with the word disorder? Mm. Okay as opposed to diagnoses being open and developmental. You know? mm -hmm. That the traumatic wounds that have difficulty healing that oftentimes will create what looks like parts mm -hmm. um, are wounds, they're not disorders. Yeah. Even the term wound is, is is too literal for my liking, but it's you know it maybe the best one we have at, at this moment in time in the universe. Mm -hmm. um, uh, to call manifestations of and and they're really not even wounds. They're they're how the system responds to threat in order to optimize its survival. Mm -hmm. So it's not even a wound. For, you know, a wound is not is this is 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 the, is the system trying to heal itself? Yeah. You know? So again, if you take all the, the manifestations of the system's attempt to survive in the face of the, what appears to be unsurvivable, mm -hmm. and then, and then just, you know, collapses that down into something that we call a disorder. Again, you can't, can't possibly understand it and and the purpose of that is to go into a treatment plan mm -hmm. you know uh it it to me is um woeful intentional ignorance mm -hmm. the uncertainty principle guides people towards wisdom mm -hmm. not knowledge Wisdom. And if you show, if you show up with your clients, having your your viewpoint being truncated, you know, talking about like you know which part of the elephant, use play on words, you know, then that's as far as 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 the person's healing can go, even in parts of it. See that the beauty of brain spotting is that we get shown over and over again that we're wrong. Whatever we think it is, wherever we think it's going to go, if you stay with it long enough, it never goes there. It always goes to some place. But part of our attitude, part of our wisdom is to know this. They say, you know, we say in brain spotting, you wait and wait and wait. What you're really waiting for is the surprise that proves you wrong every time. That is a that is a wisdom and attitude of belief system that 
that is completely absent in almost every other modality. It, it goes it, it goes against the idea. We're looking to be proven right in all the other models. I'm not saying there might be a few exceptions to this, but we're looking to be proven right. And you know what happens? We then look at whatever happens through that lens, and then then we say, yeah, you know, we won. We won the game. You know, you declare victory. That's like, you know, you're, you're playing chess, and the person is just about to, uh, uh, you know, uh, get you into checkmate. And before they have a chance to do it, you turn the table over. You say, I won. I think the, um, you know, what I really love about the brain supporting trainings that I've been lucky enough to, to, to run is that just to see that moment when therapists realize they don't have to be right. Just that relief that you don't have to be right. You don't have to organize and manipulate the entire world to kind of create some kind of outcome that you think is probably desirable. You know, that point of, I suppose it's absolute humility. And, you know, you see it in a lot of Eastern practices, much more so um, than a lot of Western psychotherapy practices, where there's never uh, an expectation for you to hold a position of expertise where you're going to lead somebody to where they need to go, that the journey has to be theirs. Yeah, they may need good support, comfort, attunement and attachment on that journey to make it safer, but the journey has to be internal and implicit in that way mm -hmm. and it's just so lovely seeing people training and going into their practice with that and i look at beautiful feedback from that there is always back to parts for a second there always that part as well isn't there because it's been indoctrinated and instilled for so many years that when you're going into your own practice maybe you're not surrounded in a community of other people training in brain spotting at the same time that <laughs> that the fear of not being right or like you say holding a space and and being able to even wait to get it wrong can undermine so much of your previous sort of identity about what it means to be a therapist. Now that can be a hard process, right? It's a, a, a quite can be a long and deep journey. Yeah, yeah. but uh, healing is always for our better. And what you're talking about is is the healing aspect of learning. when i was um working for our national health service and i used to well firstly two things one i, I moved from a, an adolescent a, a child and adolescent mental health service to a service specializing in adoption and the language completely changed the language completely changed in that we would uh, talk in the, in the mental health service about a very psychiatric kind of discourse around disorder this, disorder that, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Everyone had that. If they didn't, they had autistic spectrum disorder. You know, even things that I still kind of struggle with, like um, pathological avoidance disorder, a child who won't do what they're told ever, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And then and then I moved to, to this uh, service, which was working with... Um, kids with the most complex beginnings of life and, and then gone into adoption and and the whole language changed the way that we as a team attended to what was going on shifted but in doing so it, it shifted the the healing journey for these people there was no more disorder talk hardly any at all it wasn't all about how can we medicate this that and the other it was much more about understanding you're saying the developmental process the attachment process and this person's coping strategies to be able to still survive to where they are today and this was then more of a you know much more sort of empathic and compassionate and attuned and informed understanding of of what might be going on so that, that was really good. But about learning, coming back to your point about, about learning and, and that being a challenge in itself, with those children I was working with, those with the hardest uh, starts to life, they would often be struggling the most in education. And, you know, it, it became more and more clear over time to, to, to do well in education. You have to go into not knowing. You have to go into being vulnerable. And these kids had learned long ago that doesn't end well. You don't be vulnerable. You have to stay on top and in control. So they continue to control the class and things don't necessarily go well in that in that setting. <laughs> um, but I well, think so. It's a lovely okay. idea. I, yeah. to, I just want to say the other side to that is that the educational process as it's set up is not one of exploration. It's one of inculcation. Right. And compliance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which these children... Uh, is terrifying to these children because of 
their terrible experiences mm-hmm. with inculcation and compliance. David, we're almost out of time, so I know we're going to need to finish in a moment. Um, thank you again. Oh, so much I want to talk to you about, but for now, I'm going to hold. We'll hold this here, and uh, maybe we'll be able to pick up soon. But thanks again for joining me, and these insights are beautiful. I'm just going to re-listen to this right after we've finished recording it, and um, and put it out there to our people. A lot of people have been asking for this particular topic to be discovered and no better a person than yourself to to do that with so my absolute gratitude thank you so much well, thank you and my final words to you mark or uh, let's do it again <laughs> let's do it again well i hope you enjoyed listening to that episode and if you're curious to find out more about this guest of the show then please see their links below thank you for joining me for or in trauma until next time bye bye